millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. More than half of Americans expect to see a rise in violence after the election, according to a recent poll. Yeah, and another survey finds that nearly half, 47%, disagree with the idea that the election is likely to be fair and honest. Both findings suggest American democracy is facing a crisis. So let's go back in time and ask what lessons can be learned from previous crises in American history with Suzanne Mettler. The question for us today is whether we can do something Americans have not done before, and that is emerge from this period and really make the system more democratic, because a lot of people right now feel very excluded and feel very much like second-tier citizens. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? The American election is just weeks away, and when it's all over, one side or the other, or maybe both, is likely to be crying foul. Whether you think that voter suppression or voter fraud is the biggest threat to this election, most of us do agree that America's system of democracy is in crisis, in need of urgent care. We're going to debate a little bit about just how big a problem this is. Richard, I think you and I disagree slightly. But for a more informed perspective, we're going to look to the past, to other times of turmoil in American history with Suzanne Mettler. She's the co-author of the new book, Four Threats, the Recurring Crises of American Democracy. Suzanne is professor of American institutions and government at Cornell University, and she joins us from Syracuse, New York. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Delighted to be with you. Until recently, we thought of our democracy as at least fairly safe and secure, but now, certainly in the last few years, most would agree that it's in crisis. How bad is the threat today compared with earlier times of crisis in American democracy? Well, the threat is really quite serious. There have been numerous times in American history uh, when there have been various threats that have come together and really wreaked havoc to the system. And, you know, the late 20th century, really, when most of us were growing up, coming of age, was a pretty sublime period, a pretty calm period by comparison. But if we look back earlier, it was often in crisis. But there are four main threats we've learned that can endanger democracy. And even when three of them came together, 
um, things could really go off the rails. In the 1850s, it led to the Civil War, for example. Today, for the first time ever, all four of these threats to democracy have come together for the first time ever. We're going to get into what those specific threats are in just a second. But first, we're recording this less than a month away from a very pivotal election. Several polls say more people intend to vote than at any time in the past two decades. Isn't all that interest in the election and all that passion a sign of strength in our democracy? Well, I think that it is a sign of strength for people to really want to participate. Um, and that's great. What's worrisome is that people's confidence in the integrity of our elections has really gone downhill in just the last few years. You know, will people accept the legitimacy of the result is a key question. And it's a big concern that the president himself is refusing to say that he will concede if he loses. Um, that's a, a big concern. So let's get into what those threats are. Uh the first one you talk about is political polarization. I can't imagine anyone's listening to this podcast who doesn't have a feel for how that plays out in our lives today. So polarization, political scientists have been thinking about it for a while, how um, policy making happens more slowly in Congress and it's more difficult when you have polarization. But now what we're really looking at is why is polarization harmful for democracy? And it becomes harmful for democracy when society and politics uh, sort themselves out so that instead of having multiple overlapping groups that we all belong to, um, that we sort ourselves out into what feels like two teams, us versus them. And what's really problematic is when the competition between these two teams becomes so great that they uh, want to you know, win at all costs and that becomes more important than preserving democracy. We think of our current polarization as being unprecedented, but this partisan bitterness has happened several times before in American history. Yeah, um, no sooner was the ink dry on the Constitution when in the 1790s, the two parties became very polarized right out of the gate. And then it happened again. Um, there was a lot of polarization throughout the 19th century and leading up to the Civil War. There certainly was the 1850s, again in the 1890s. It was more rare in the 20th century, but it's been growing now since the 1980s. And now we're in a very highly polarized time. The second threat that you talk about in the book involves racism and nativism, debates over who's included and excluded from the political process. How has that played out historically? Yeah, so this is what we call conflict over who belongs, who's a member of the political community. And these kinds of conflicts are particularly problematic for democracy when uh, it goes back to some formative rift in the creation of the country where some group is excluded or given second tier status. This happened for African-Americans most egregiously in the Constitution um, because of slavery. And um, until such a rift is really overcome, it just can, it can keep recurring again and again. We, we certainly made progress, but we haven't um, managed to really deal with it um, fundamentally. And so we still have this great racial inequality. And then, of course, it's also paired with nativism about immigration. Um, and so these conflicts today have become particularly problematic because they overlap with political polarization. 
So one party takes a certain stand and the other party a different stand. And that's really um, driving the kind of um, us versus them dynamic that's harmful for democracy. Do you think exclusion from the system is worse now, though, than it has been for most of our history when women were not allowed the vote until 100 years ago and and African-Americans were were totally excluded and enslaved in the earlier decades of of our democracy? It's a a great question. The United States has democratized over time. And I would say, you know, we really became a democracy by around the 1960s or 1970s, and there was full inclusion of all these groups that had been excluded or given second-tier status previously. And so you've got an arc of real progress in the United States. But what's happening today is that people have different views about whether um, inequality remains a problem and government should do something about it or not. And the division over that is uh, along party lines, which is not always the case. Like that wasn't, it wasn't so neatly divided along party lines in the 1960s, for example, but now it's really divided along party lines and increasingly so. One thing I would say is that I think there are more Americans than ever today who believe in the ideal of equality and really want American society and politics to be more equal in terms of gender and race, et cetera. Um, but they tend to be grouped in the Democratic Party. You mentioned economic inequality, which is the third threat you cite. Why is that a threat to democracy? Yeah, this is interesting. We've learned from scholars who study the rise and decline of democracy around the world. And they look at other countries where democracy has deteriorated and they look at what are the patterns. So um, these scholars know that high and rising economic inequality is problematic. I assumed going into it that that was because you have the 99% says we need to change things here and there's a revolution. But that's actually not the dynamic that's typical. Instead, it's the top 1%, the most affluent and business interests in a time of high economic inequality they decide we've got to lock down what we have. And they are willing to do this at all costs, even if democracy is trampled in the process. Speaking of inequality, one of the eras on your list of of different points in our history when these issues have really come to a head was one that most people might not think of as as a period of intense conflict. And that's the Gilded Age in the late 19th century. How did inequality affect politics during that period? So this is a period when these first three threats came together. So polarization, conflict over who belongs, and economic inequality. Financial elites and, and you know the, the wealthiest people were divided sectionally between the industrialists in the north and the agrarian elites in the south. And then in the south, what happens, and this is the story we focus on in the book, is that these agrarian elites, because you know they happen to be Democrats and they wanted the Democratic Party to be the dominant party. They didn't want to have to compete in elections. They were getting tired of doing that. It was too much work. And worse yet for them, they were starting to lose the populist party of that day, the agrarian party, which was on, on the rise. And that was a, a function of lower and middle income farmers trying to rise up against this upper 1% of the time, they were starting to work together in the South with African-Americans who were in the Republican Party. And they found that when they worked together, they could actually win seats and beat the Democrats. 
And the Democrats at this point said, this has gone on long enough. In North Carolina, things came to a head. In 1898, the Democratic Party planned a coup d'etat in the city of Wilmington, North Carolina, which was really a success story at that time. I think there were African-Americans moving into the middle class and holding office and many local elected positions. That day, uh, first, there were all of these white supremacist paramilitary groups that marched to the offices of a Black-owned newspaper and burned it to the ground. Then they proceeded into Black neighborhoods. And as the day wore on, they killed hundreds of people. They drove other people out of town. They took them to the train station, made them leave. And by the end of the day, at gunpoint, they forced the elected officials to resign. And they installed their own folks in their place. Then over the next couple of months, what they did was they changed the the rules for voting in North Carolina in stating uh, literacy tests and poll taxes. In all of North Carolina, uh, not just Wilmington? Yes. Yeah, Wilmington, they chose as sort of an example. And what they were trying to do was to cement their dominance. The Democratic Party was trying to cement its dominance so they wouldn't have competition going forward. And what happened there in North Carolina that really came out into the open through this coup happened all over the South more quietly. By the end of the decade, African-American men, millions of them who had been practicing their voting rights for the last couple of decades and who had been serving in public office, they were run out of politics. They were disenfranchised. And once people were disenfranchised, then in turn, they lost their civil liberties and their civil rights. It lasts for 60 years. That was one thing that really struck home with me, a story that I know, but it was just kind of heartbreaking and infuriating to be reminded again just how thorough that disenfranchisement of the African-American community was in that period and how long it lasted. Your fourth threat that you talk about in the book is one that isn't always associated with uh, an anti-democratic movement. Sometimes people think it's a form of democracy, and that's excessive executive power. And that one really comes into focus during the Great Depression. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. So up until the 1930s, American presidents did not have that much power, um, particularly to do things in in domestic policy. Um, But the Great Depression cried out for it. And Americans really wanted a president to be able to respond to their needs. And so during that time, uh, the Roosevelt administration really um, began to exercise new powers that previous presidents had not or had not to the same extent. Congress delegated a lot of this power to the president. Many Americans were afraid that Roosevelt would become a dictator. They're looking across the Atlantic at Europe and seeing that happening elsewhere. But it didn't happen. I mean, there there were some ways in which Roosevelt, um, you know, used executive power um, in, in ways that were dangerous for democracy, such as the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. But generally speaking, Roosevelt was able to navigate the country through this and to preserve liberal democracy. But these new tools of executive power are created, and then they become expanded with each subsequent president. And you get to the 1970s to Watergate, and here's President Richard Nixon, and he wants to use executive power for his own political gain and to go after his political enemies. 
Um, and so there you see, you know, the, the really dangerous side of executive power when it can be harmful to democracy. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Suzanne Mettler, who is the author of a new book called Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We're back with Suzanne Mettler. Now, Suzanne, as the resident semi-conservative libertarian-ish uh, contrarian <laughs> on the show. I, we, we, we don't fit into neat boxes. Right. I, I often am in the position of, of being the, the pushback guy. I found the book a fascinating overview of these periods in history when our democracy really was challenged or, or rolled back. But I, I want to press you a little bit on the notion that our democracy is so challenged today. I, I don't see anything on the, I see a lot of hot talk and a lot of polarization, but I don't see anything on the, on the horizon that looks as serious, say, as the internment of uh, Japanese Americans during World War II, for example, or, or massive rollbacks of, of the right to vote for, for a major portion of the, of the population. What am I missing? Well, so there are four pillars of democracy that we identify that are really necessary to make it work. So these are free and fair elections, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the opposition, and integrity of rights. We see um, President Donald Trump as more of a, a symptom than a cause of the danger to democracy that we're, we're in. Um, and we think that there was some deterioration of democracy that was happening before he was elected. And things like the um, proliferation of restrictive voter ID laws, the denial of a Supreme Court seat to Obama's nomination, Merrick Garland, we see is problematic. But certainly since um, Trump came into the White House, there's been um, a real um, exacerbation of these trends. And we see most of the harm that's been happening in the last few years, and particularly this year, being to free and fair elections and the rule of law. For African Americans, I think they're looking at the increase in incarceration rates over the past many decades um, in their communities and at police brutality. And for a lot of African-Americans, it feels like this trend has been going on for some time, that there's been an increase in um, the use of state power in a way that 
sure doesn't feel democratic. You mentioned free and fair elections. During the COVID pandemic, we've seen attempts to limit access to the polls and mail-in voting at a time when many people are worried about being in large crowds on polling day. In Texas, we had the example of Republican Governor Greg Abbott, who ordered very strict limits on where voters can drop off their absentee ballots in person. This could reduce turnout in cities, especially for lower-income citizens that don't have cars. Yes, I'm very concerned about that. Here we are in the midst of a pandemic, and people really want to be able to vote by mail. And it seems that government, um, in some ways the federal government and various states, are making it more difficult for people instead of easier for them to do this. I mean, it was going to be complicated to begin with, since elections are really run at the state level. And you know, in an ideal world, states would have 10 years to roll out new plans for mail-in voting and to really work out the, you know, iron out the difficulties. In Portland and other cities, we've seen nightly uh, demonstrations that after a certain period often turn violent with incendiary de- devices aimed at law enforcement officers and you know, arson of federal buildings and other activities, aside from some of the broader riots that have decimated communities. This kind of violence in the streets, does it have a precedent? Is, is this a symptom or part of the challenges to our democracy that you're seeing today? Well, most of the protests that have been happening since June have been peaceful protests. But I would say that you know, the federal government has responded in many instances with a very heavy hand and, you know, using tear gas and rubber bullets and so on on protesters, sending in these unidentified federal officers and in Washington, D.C., clearing the crowd so the president could have his photo op in front of the church with the Bible. These are very heavy handed responses in a nation that is supposed to pride itself on freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. But the feds were only in Portland for a week or so, and there has been, you know, uh, months of of activities against local or state law enforcement. Do do the protesters on the far left have any responsibility to live up to the same uh, democratic norms that we we expect when people exercise their right for free expression? I'm not talking about peaceful protesters. Yeah, ninety percent are peaceful, but you know if. 2% aren't, and they're armed, and they're lighting things on fire. That's a concern, isn't it? Oh, that's certainly a concern. Um, but, uh, you know, we've we've also, you know, had this problem on the right with um, white supremacists, and the country has been slow to take them seriously and to appropriate the, the kind of funds and, and law enforcement to really investigate them and to follow them and to track them. And, you know, fortunately now some of that is happening. Thank goodness that the governor of Michigan was not successfully kidnapped um, last week, but it is, it's a big concern. Suzanne, I want to talk a little bit about solutions. Our show is how do we fix it? Um, American democracy has bounced back before. What gives you hope today about strengthening the guardrails of our democracy. The question for us today is whether we can do something Americans have not done before. And that is emerge from this period and really make the system more democratic. 
because a lot of people right now feel very excluded and feel very much like second tier citizens. I have hope. I, I think I'm, you know, I'm an optimistic person. <laughs> um, and I think there is a lot of American ingenuity that is under the surface and that people can come together. Um, and I, I do, I, you know, I found it really heartening this summer that after all of these protests began, that um, it was clear that, you know, when you look at who was protesting, there were a lot of white people protesting. The protests were really diverse in terms of who was out in the streets. And they were not just in big cities. They were in small cities and even small towns all over the country. Um, and so that's really heartening to me. There also seemed to be a shift in public opinion toward uh, more people saying that racial inequality is a problem and we need to do something about it. One of the things that we talk a lot about and focus on at How Do We Fix It is stuff happening at the local level, like those inspiring protests that we saw in a lot of the country, but going beyond just expressions of sentiment and actually helping build institutions from the ground up on, on a local level. We just did a show on this really neat group called Civic Lex in Lexington, Kentucky, that helps step in and educate the public about basic civics, really. You know, how does the city budget work? How, where, how to vote? Uh, how to get involved in, in being heard on a local level? How important are those local institutions? Are there any examples of this from history that are your favorites of how not every solution has to come from the top down? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, if you go way back to the 1790s, you had citizens beginning to organize in what were called the Democratic Republican Societies. You know, that might be kind of a nice name to resurrect to try to bring people together, but they were active citizens. George Washington couldn't stand them. He thought it was inappropriate for citizens in between elections to be trying to influence government. <laughs> but today we would look at them as good citizens. They were trying to study public affairs and to uh, communicate to their elected officials what they thought about things. Uh, and so that's a great example. And they were a uh, you know, really a federated organization in that they were local, uh, but then they were tied together nationally. And the United States has a long history of organizations like that being really important for democracy. Those organizations have been suffering for the last 40 years or so. And among the suffering organizations are political parties. This might sound counterintuitive because we've been talking about strong partisanship today, but actual party organizations have become weak at the local level. And I think um, that there's a real need to reinvigorate political parties in a new way. And, you know, it can't be just activists way on the left and way on the right, or, you know, maybe the, the, what happens at the local level is that activists, once they're involved, they learn that to work together and to get things done, they need to become pragmatic. And I think that can be really positive for democracy. Suzanne Mettler, co-author of the book with Robert Lieberman, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Richard, you know, often when we do our recommendations that something contemporary, a new book or a new podcast, but you've reached way back into the what, you know, for those of us who went to high school in the United States was part of many of our reading lists. And it's a book extremely relevant today because it's about politics. Tell us what it is. 
All the King's Men, first published in 1946, written by Robert Penn Warren, and it portrays the dramatic rise of Governor Willie Stark, a cynical left-wing autocratic populist in the South who certainly does not play by the rules and, oh, wow, it's so well-written and, and just zings right along. So, Jim, our conversation about this whole crisis in American democracy and the four threats mentioned by Suzanne Mettler, I've got a couple more. Uh, and, and that is the lack of respect for the rules and, and also regard for the truth. Over the last four years, President Trump's disregard for rules, seen most recently in, in the presidential debate, and his erratic personal behavior have not just set a bad example, but they've harmed our system of governments and weakened democracy. He's trashed uh, local, experienced, and dedicated state election officials from both parties by saying the entire election system is rigged. He's refused to commit to accepting the results. And talking like a pundit or a reality TV host when you're president, I think, is dangerous. I couldn't agree more. I mean, sometimes, even for people who support some of Trump's policies, it's just mind-blowing how often he uh, he acts as if he's not actually running the government. He'll complain about people who work for him. You want to say, like, dude, you've got a telephone. You know, pick it up and call them and tell them what you want to do. The the lack of respect for those kinds of the style of the of the norms of what it means to be a president is is really galling. But here's where I'm going to push back. And I mentioned this at the top a little bit. I find a constant drumbeat of concern for all the things that Trump might do, all the terrible things he's hinted at in his sloppy, disorganized way of, of, of speaking. But if you look at the record, you know, everybody thinks fascism is about to descend on America. Okay, where is it? So I, I'm concerned about where we are. I'm concerned that there's an awful lot of of pressure against norms, but I'm not buying that they're all coming from Trump. I think they preceded him in many ways. Um, Suzanne talked about the the rise of of power of the executive. Well, when did that really intensify? It's particularly intense under Obama, and I didn't hear any criticisms of it. I think there are plenty of criticisms of of Obama's use of executive orders and, and plenty of criticisms of George W. Bush's uses of, of executive orders before that. And now Trump. I mean, I think that that is a bipartisan problem. So but uh, so don't tell me, oh, my God, now we have a crisis when when Trump is president. Well, we have a crisis because of the things I mentioned, not about executive orders. But I don't want to sound like I'm arguing against this book as whole. It's a really important read, but I definitely differ on the, the degree of severity of the, how much our institutions are threatened today. I don't think this crisis today is that bad. I'm more alarmed about what's going on right now under this current president than, than you are. But I want to end with a couple of, of hopeful thoughts, as I usually do uh, towards the end of our podcast. One is that 
a sign of strength in our democracy is the likely turnout in the election, which could be at a record high for at least the past 50 years. So that's cool. And then the other thing I think which is hopeful is, is campaign finance. Technology has made it much easier for political movements to raise large sums of money, not from billionaires or from big corporations, but from individuals who are not very wealthy or well-connected. Uh, we've seen a, a huge rise in the power of small donations. So those are two hopeful things. Yeah, so let's keep our fingers crossed that the ship of state doesn't <laughs> run onto the reef in the next few weeks <laughs> and that we get through this, this period. But I feel that we're going to come out of this stronger rather than weaker. I sure hope you're right. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 